making democracy work is the theme since 2017 and up through 2020 at least uh, the, of the uh, U.S. League of Women Voters, and it has to do with furthering the use of, of citizenship and civil rights by all citizens and in some cases all residents of the United States. So we will be looking at issues like voter suppression, disinformation, gerrymandering, campaign finance, and if any of those topics appeals to you, you can join our subcommittee on making democracy work. This forum was put together by a number of people who are named on the study guide, people on the planning committee, and I'd like them to stand quickly so that they can be acknowledged and thanked for their work. Yay. <laughs> Last month in September, we had uh, the first of our forums on climate crisis, um, an excellent forum, and there'll be another one in November on the role of local government in confronting climate crisis, and two more after that in the spring. So we have a four-session series on climate crisis, and we'll have a four-session series on making democracy work, alternating through the year. So I hope you'll watch for all of them. Starting next month, we'll mostly be back in our regular stamping grounds of Capitol Lakes. Um, but we might just go out to the far reaches of the west side. You never know. Um, <laughs> so I am, uh, again, saying welcome to all of you. We will have some time for Q&A at the end. So please hold on to your questions until then. Um, and we'll also have a brief uh, mention of how citizens and residents can get involved in the work of the census. So Marilyn Townsend, who reached out to some of our speakers, is going to do the introductions for our speakers. Thank you, Mary um, England, for the overview of what will happen this evening. My name is Marilyn Townsend. I am an attorney in Dane County and a League of Women Voters member who, along with many others, have helped plan tonight's program on the 2020 census. As Mary mentioned, tonight's program is the second of the League of Women Voters 2019-2020 public issues forums on challenges we face in making democracy work. As many of you may know, and those of you who don't know should know, the League of Women Voters, from its founding almost 100 years ago next year, has been committed to making democracy work. The League was founded on the heels of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. The League's initial purpose was to help women take a larger role in public affairs after they won the right to vote. But very quickly, its focus broadened to educating and assisting all people to take a larger role in public affairs and exercise their right to vote. 
A complete and accurate census count in 2020 is an essential component of our democracy. The population count resulting from the census is not only used to apportion representatives, but also to draw electoral districts. The census will also determine how an estimated $880 billion a year in federal funding is distributed for public services like schools and roads. Our speakers this evening are uniquely positioned to inform us as to the challenges in achieving a complete count and educate us on how we can help to achieve a complete count. Our first speaker, Professor Margo Anderson, is a recognized national expert on the census. Her book, The American Census, A Social History, is often quoted and was recently cited by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer in his concurring opinion in which the Supreme Court ruled that the current administration would not be permitted to add a citizenship question to the census, at least for now. The court held that the administration's justification for adding the question, which was purportedly to help enforce the Voting Rights Act, was a pretext, and as we say in employment law, was a lie, <laughs> rather than the real reason for making the decision. Professor Anderson served as a Peace Corps volunteer in India, studied history as an undergrad at Bucknell University, graduated, and then earned a master's degree and a PhD from Rutgers University. She joined the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in 1977, where she chaired the history department, directed the urban studies program, and became a distinguished professor in 2013. She is the author of hundreds of articles, books, and papers on the census. Her presentation this evening will address the 2020 census from a historical perspective and inform us that many of the controversies surrounding the 2020 census are not new. Ben Zellers, who will follow her presentation, serves as a planner with the city of Madison and is the leader of Madison's Complete Count Committee, which is working to make sure every person in the city is counted, including homeless populations. He will inform us about the grants that the city is offering to groups and individuals with expertise in reaching hard-to-count populations. Mr. Sellers is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a master's degree in urban and regional planning. Earlier, he earned a bachelor's degree in urban and regional planning from Miami University in Ohio. 
Our third speaker, Abba Tecker, Tucker, is the executive director of the Northside Planning Council here in Madison. Ms. Tucker was born in India and shortly thereafter moved to Wisconsin. She attended UW-Madison studying political science and international relations. She also earned an elementary teaching certificate. She has been an active and vigorous leader of the Northside Planning Council, which council is a recipient of a city grant to address hard-to-count populations. Ms. Tuckers has been working on creating a network of neighborhood navigators and will provide us with insights into how such networks will assist in attempting to sure, ensure that every vote is counted. With that, we will begin with Professor Anderson. Um, we're going to do a very quick crash course in census history, mostly so that you can sort of see, uh, you can contextualize uh, what, where we are. You know, we're basically about six or seven months away from April 1st, 2020, which will be, you know, the big day, if you will. And so I'm going to drag us through. Um, um, is that better? Yeah, okay. I'm going to drag you through... Um, 230 years of American history, really fast. Okay, okay. so the, just a, a little plug. Um, the, I forgot a copy of the book today, but there it is, the blue cover. Um, and I've done an encyclopedia and written a book about census undercount controversies and so forth. So anybody who wants more detail, please feel free to get in touch, email, call, whatever. Um, so the who, what, when, and why. Um, it was created in 1787 uh, as part of the Constitution uh, to apportion seats in the House and in the Electoral College. Uh, interestingly, you know, we're spending a lot of time looking at the Constitution these days, and um, of course, <laughs> and we'll spend a lot more in the next six to eight months. Um, and the Census Clause uh, is one of the key elements, I would argue, of um, the. Uh, enterprise that created the American government that has lasted pretty well for 230 years. So the, um, and then the second aspect of this is that the U.S. has an incredibly dynamic demographic history, much more dynamic than almost any other country in the world. And um, we, the, the fact that we tied the political system to the demo demographic change of the country and the diversity of the country means that the census is always a very big deal every decade. Okay, so I'm going to run us backwards. So there's, you know, we've done it, um, as I said, 23 times. So we go backwards, 50, 40, 30, I jumped to 1870, 1850, 1790, I don't have an image, but that's a Liverpool creamware pitcher that's in the Smithsonian Institution with the engraving of the uh, results of the 1790 census on it. Right? Lots of pop culture here. Right? Okay, we all have seen that graph 
um, in it shows up in every American history textbook you've ever seen of the growth of the population. I'll come back to it in a minute. But the fact that, that the population grew so fast meant that every decade, the, the census and the reapportionment process was going to um, juggle political power around the country. Right? So the census is a rare, repeated, and unobtrusive event in American history. It's intended to be that. You know, we, we're only on the 24th. By, we're on the 45th president, right? Uh, and we're on the 116th Congress. So the census doesn't come up very frequently, once every 10 years. And uh, it's repeated, though, successfully every year since 1790. Many countries cannot do this and have not done it. And we've managed to do it despite wars, economic crises, the Civil War, and so forth, and except for one point, use it to reapportion political power in the country. That was in 1920. It is also an um, unobtrusive event. It is almost invisible. It's supposed to come around. Uh, you fill out the form. It goes away for a decade from the respondent's householder's perspective. Most people don't remember the last one, the one before that, the one before that. When I ask people, where, where were you on April 1st, 2010, I get blank stares. If I ask you where you were on September 11th, 2001, you remember. Right? And that's intentional. It's not supposed to be an obtrusive event in uh, our lives. And I, you know, when I do this talk, I always get people saying, oh, I was not, not, never been counted in the census. Mm -hmm. <laughs> never. Right? And I tell them how they can find out that they were. Right? But I'll leave that to later. OK, it's Janus face. Um, it, we're always looking forward and backward. So we draw, we see where the population is going, where things are growing, where, uh, how we did it the last time, how we're going to, what we're going to change, and it's the tension between those two things that always makes that makes life interesting, if you will. So I'm going to let's do some constitutional history. Um, here are conjure up these men sitting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 in a closed room uh, at about 90 degrees, trying to uh, unscramble a, basically a, a, a failing state. And they came up with the language, we the people of the United States, in order, you know, will form this government. So they anchored the sovereignty of the society, not in a king or nobility or even in the land, but rather in the people. And as a result, um, and they were all men, white men as a matter of fact, just so that you're sure of that, um, they, they wrote this particular clause, um, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included in the union according to their respective numbers. Now, which shall be determined, so the question was, um, um, uh, you know, how do we do this? By adding to the whole number of um, free persons, because of course this is a slave society at the time, uh, though including those bound to, to service for a term of years, those were white indentured servants, three-fifths of all other persons, and we exclude Indians not taxed. So our racial classification system is built right into the foundation of the state with that uh, phrase. And then we said, okay, how are we going to do it? Um, in the Constitutional Convention, you can read the debates. They're really fascinating on this because they said could, maybe the state could count themselves. Mm -mm. They'll phony up the numbers. 
So Congress had to do it. It had to be a federal function. So the language is um, that the, it must be done every 10 years, it must be done soon after the government takes office, and it must be done in such manner as they shall by law direct, meaning the Congress. But by the way, that phrase played out in the citizenship issue um, because, of course, that's not where the citizenship question came from. It did not come from Congress. Um, okay, so the importance of the census was that the U.S. was the first country to do this um, and connected to its political system. And it was also, um, because it was a very dyna demographically dynamic population, it had um, the combination of those two things makes the census a crucial political event every decade. Okay? Um, now we're going to study the demog a little demography for a minute. Dynamism, meaning growth. Diversity, meaning um, uh, numerical, geographic, race, and ethnic. Okay. Um, and then we're going to talk about how that drives the technical innovation in actually doing um, the census. So, new, you know, so we've gone from 3.9 million people to 330 million. 13 states have become 50. The House of Representatives has gone from 65 to 435. The average congressional district after 2010 was larger than the total population of, the end of the, any of the original 13 states. Right. And this is the growth. And um, it has been differential. Some states grow, and some states and local areas grow while others lose. Now, that means that because the, the formulas reward growth, if you don't grow as fast as someplace else, you lose political power. So there's a map uh, that looks like a light map. It's actually a demographic map that the Census Bureau has produced. And now I'm going to give you again those, um, that graph of the population growth to compare to England, France, and um, Japan. Uh, so you can sort of see how much more dynamic the American population was. In other words, that upward swing. And we just assume that in the United States. We just assume the population grows right, every decade. Uh, and it still is. Okay, there's another way of looking at that, which is to see the growth in the number of states on the left and the growth of the size of the House of Representatives on the right. Um, the one on the right sort of flattens out, which means that we have not changed the size of the House of Representatives since 1910, despite the fact that um, the population has grown since then. That, we can talk about that and the implications of that. Um, and now I'm going to show you some of the, um, the, um, the diversity of, and stuff. Most of these images here are from the Census Bureau and are which pioneered in the visualization of information and data all going all the way back into the 19th century because, they, they, uh, because there was massive public interest in this um, all, you know, all along. So you, what you can see here is that the colors are different, representing the population density or growth and decline. The purple areas are areas with declining population. The bright green are the ones with the growing population. This is 2000 to 2010. You can look at these you know, for, um, uh, for every decade in the history of the country. And they, the Bureau drills down and gives you those inform that information. You know, these are state comparisons, but you can also go down to the local level and to cities and towns and so forth. And so what you see here is um, I just pulled out Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Illinois. And what you can see is the lumpiness and the lopsidedness of where the population is 
in the United States. And of course, you know, the, it's upstate, downstate. Um, uh, you know, down uh, southeast Wisconsin versus uh, up north, uh, and so forth in Wisconsin. The uh, and the same thing is true with Michigan. Right? Okay. So the effect of that is that the, the that counterintuitively growth does not automatically lead to more power because if someplace else is growing faster than you are, even if you're growing, it doesn't do it. So I'm going to use New York State as an example. It, that looks pretty, that's 200 years of New York. Right? That's up a lot, it's pretty good. You want, now you want to bet, see what its congressional delegation look like? Look at that. <laughs> Why? Well, um, because it is, it's affected, basically the, the downturn in the 19th century was the growth of the West, right? And then the urbanization took hold and New York went back up again, and then uh, the Sun Belt grew and New York goes back down again, right? So the, and that to an ordinary person is like, why are we losing a seat in Congress or a member of my state legislature when my population went up? Well, that's because you're balancing it across the whole country. Okay, so here's um, some patternings from, um, this is uh, 2010. It shows you where the growth um, of in just as you in the in the congressional seats were, and you can see that it was in the South and the West, and the Midwest is not doing too well, and the Northeast. Um, here's the um, pop, the estimates based uh, that we now are putting forth for 2020 of the growth rate between 10 and 20. Right, the dark red is the fastest growth. The, the um, estimate now is that Illinois is actually declining in population, but the pale pink is, um, you know, it characterizes the uh, Northeast and the Midwest, and it shows you the shifting of political power. Right now, this translates into the, sh the estimated shifts in for 2020. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, it looks really quite different. You can go blind looking at these maps right, uh, in various ways. So here's one, here's the two of them together. And so that you can see that a lot of the states with, in the West that with pretty fat, rapid population growth don't get any benefit out of it. The, the white areas are ones where there's no change in their congressional delegation. Right? So we're going to be talking about that, which is like, and I, um, as each decade, we have to relearn this kind of um, the implications of what we're doing. Okay, so finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about I'm going to uh, talk about geographic diversity. Of course, we all know about you know the movement of the country, uh, the population across the country. Um, you see a bunch of little dots on there that the Census Bureau um, created. That is a theoretical notion of the center of population, which is that if you took everybody in the United States and made them stand still where they are, where they live, where would it balance, right? And the Census Bureau invented this little notion in about 1870 as a way of showing this westward and now southwestward trajectory of the population. If you ride across the country, you can find little historical markers on those things, right? Um, and, and so forth. You know, it's in Missouri now. Um, there's a close-up of that. It was in Indiana for a very long time, right? Now, um, we also, of course, as a result of taking the census and recounting, 
uh, learned very quickly in the United States how to finagle in um, um, the, and of course here in Wisconsin, this is a famous issue right now. Um, this is the original gerrymander, 1812. So it, it's a, you know, we learned how to do this a long time ago. Um, and this is Elbridge Gerry's um, apportionment of uh, state legislative seats um, to, for the benefit of his political party in Massachusetts. The the, it showed up in the newspaper with, you know, and the term gerrymander was born after Jerry, right? Um, we are still arguing about this. Uh, race and ethnic diversity, right? And again, I'll just some basic patterns. Um, this is the proportion of um, the percent of the population that's white, right? You can see it's different of, um, about the country. This is black, African-American, Latino. You can see each one is different, right? Asian, right? Uh, this is non-Hispanic white, I'm sorry. Next one is Asian, right? And in the West, primarily. And um, Hispanic white alone or in combination. Uh, black or African-American uh, as a percent of county population, right? And foreign-born, right? Um, I don't have this at the county level. I only have it at the state, at the, uh, at the state level. Um, now, so what, you, what the point is, is that the diversity and the dynamism together make the census, um, uh, uh, you know, a, as I said, a, a political big deal, if you will. Now I want to talk a little bit about the technical change of how we do it. Um, remember this, these pictures I showed at the beginning, um, you know, of uh, essentially of a census taker um, uh, in a household uh, t collecting the information, you know, 1850, 1870, and 1930, I think, or maybe 1940. And uh, the uh, and this is and then to indicate that we've always taken uh, the census by household, not by person, by household. So the actual census form that um, goes to an address, not to a human, right, if you will. And someone in the household um, completes the form on behalf of the household, right? So now you can see that you, these households were quite big, right, much bigger than ours now, right? Lots of people there. Um, the, uh, now we are, our household size is much smaller, but somebody is supposed to do it. Right? And that's why a lot of people say, well, I never filled out the census. Yeah, but my roommate did, or my husband did, or my sister-in-law did, or you see. Um, and tabulation and, and uh, the publication have always been done in the federal government in Washington. The change has been in the questions. And I'm going to give you a very quick rundown of the, the questions um, of, of what's been asked at the time. Um, it used to take a very long time to do this, like a year and a half, to actual, the actual enumeration in the horseback days. Um, how we uh, summed it up, and believe it or not, until 1880, it was done by hand, by hand. So you can imagine when the population of the United States topped 50 million in 1880, and a whole legion of clerks were sitting in Washington going, one, two, three, four, hash mark, one, two, three, four, hash mark. Right? Uh, that led partially to what is called machine tabulation, which, was the, um, which ultimately became IBM right? and um, the punch card tabulation era. And that led to computerization, um, which we've done since 1950. Um, the publications were mostly in books until about 1990. Um, um, computer punch cards, tapes and discs from 
in the 60s and the 90s as the computer revolution took off, and now it's all on the internet. And there's very little um, physical um, production of books the way there used to be. Um, now, basic questions asked every time. Age, sex, race, ethnicity, location, and household composition. Right? So you need um, uh, the, uh, the race ethnicity in particular is uh, needed for, um, first for, to, you know, for the, uh, for, uh, to enforce the three-fifths compromise, since now it's used to enforce um, civil rights laws. The location, because you have to allocate political um, seats by space, so you need to know where the person is. Household composition is usually is, is designed to, to array the people in the particular household, age and sex similarly. The questions change a lot, um, as well as the level of detail. I can talk about, about this a little bit more. But now we are doing a very simple census in 2020. The slogan in 10, 2010 was 10 questions in 10 minutes. In other words, we stripped off all the detailed um, economic and social information about education and work and uh, you know, migration and so forth had come down to the basic ones. Um, but the, um, and, and as you'll hear, we put the census, um, all that other stuff on a different survey. Right? So the American Community Survey, which is now what used to be called the long-form census, um, has a, um, it asks a very large number of questions of a sample. It's in the field all the time. And some of your, your um, promotional materials for tonight talked about ACS and the American Community Survey. It's technically part of the census program, um, so it uh, comes under the same statutory requirement to respond, but it is not um, done, you know, it will not be done, you know, in conjunction with April, with the, the count in April 1st. It, it, in other words, the ACS re results from 2018 were just published like two weeks ago and so forth. So it's in the field constantly. It's called continuous measurement, partially because the, the long-form census got really old at the end of the decade. So once they figured out uh, methodologically how to do it all, you know, continuously, um, they replaced it in about 2005. Questions about people, all kinds of things, right? Questions about housing. We added a formal census of housing in 1940, right? And after that, it used to be called the Census of Population and Housing. We, and these are just some examples. Believe it or not, we used to ask whether somebody was maimed, insane, or idiotic. Uh, those are literal terms on the form, right? Um, um, uh, we ask, um, needless to say, we don't do that now. Um, and, but we ask a lot of very, very detailed questions. Income, for example, though, wasn't asked really until 1940 because it, it didn't make sense for in a large part, part of the population, especially when people lived in agricultural areas and farms. Uh, we ask about family relationships. We ask about migration. We ask about voting eligibility, veteran status, naturalization status, mother tongue, English, years in the U.S., and so forth. Housing, all kinds of questions about um, ownership, uh, the you know the, what whether it's a farm, plumbing, equipment. A lot of those questions were um, uh, one of the problems with the long form census was that people didn't like answering some of those, so that it moved to the ACS. Okay, technology. I'm almost done here. So technology is the um, is 
is really um, crucial to taking the American census because of this need not only to collect the information but report it fast so that Congress can be reapportioned by this next part of the decade. So what you see here are the images of the computers and uh, um, the uh, and legions of clerks and, and people. It's, a it's an incredibly labor-intensive enterprise for a brief period while, while the thing is underway. Um, and it gets better when we have computers. Um, all right, um, nice clean room with two people with, you know, running the computers. That was one computer, by the way, right? There's not, not these nice little things we have now. Um, and the, uh, the mapping, it turns out, and the laying out of the geography of the country was always a problem, and it was never really automated until really the last 30 years. This is the way they did it through 1960, right? Um, you know, the old-fashioned way, paper maps, crawling around on them, you know, laying out enumeration districts and so forth. It was replaced by what is called the Tiger Map System, uh, which is the topologically integrated geographic encoding referencing system, um, and the master address file. So we now have a national map. Uh, thank you, UPS. UP every time UPS or Amazon sends you something, this is why public good. Census Bureau did it with the geological survey, and the master address file that matches each address, residential address, to the map. Right? It's a big job. Okay, so 20. Now, so now that you've, you're up to speed, um, let's take a look at 2020. The big issue in 2020 is the shift to try to use a smart device or internet response. In other words, on the left, you see the old the 2010 form. Um, on the right, you see what we hope to use in 2020. However, basically because the census only gets one chance to do this, and uh, there's likely, you know, there are likely to be issues. Not everybody has internet access. There could be technical problems. The Bureau will allow four different response modes. One is internet, one is paper, good old-fashioned paper, Three is phone, and fourth is human. Someone will show up at your household. They ultimately, they will, take, they will check every residential address on their address file um, to find out if somebody lives there, declared vacant or occupied. Right? Um, and the human portion of it, is, which is called non-response follow-up, is uh, that's the expensive piece, because you have to hire several hundred thousand people to wander around the country and do this. Okay. Issues today. It's expensive. Uh, Congress and the President do have different ideas. Um, will Americans respond as they have in the past? This, this kind of meeting is designed to, to address that and have people think it through um, and help that promotional effort. Um, what, what will the reapportionment and redistricting process be like? We have reapportionment is a fairly um, simple process, so we we have a pretty good idea of where the seats are going to go um, already because of the patterning um, so far. And of course, the citizenship controversy was a huge one for the last two years. That now rising to now rising to the fore are issues of cybersecurity. In other words, will the process get hacked? Um, will there be people messing with the um, enterprise, uh, trolls, and so? And then, of course, the always the issue: is it accurate? You know, can we use it? Um, the um, I'm going to give you a very quick 
background on the citizenship question really fast here. That um, there's a, one of the reasons it was such a big deal is the U.S. has the largest international migrant population in the world. Right? There's a lot of foreign-born people in the United States. Um, 44 and a half million people. Um, the question that was proposed, um, whoops, um, was a basic simple was a simple one. It's actually on the ACS, but in the ACS context, it's with a several other questions about um, um, your place of birth and um, and other you know other is other issues. Um, the as a result, the courts decided in June of nineteen of, uh, of twenty nineteen that the uh, Commerce Secretary had violated uh, the Administrative Procedures Act. The Trump administration fussed around with that for a while, but finally acceded to the ruling of the court. There would have been a constitutional crisis, by the way, had they not. Right? Um, and some of us were watching that with great trepidation for about two weeks. Um, the immigrants can be, and this is important as you work with this issue in the, um, going forward, immigrants are people born abroad, but they can be citizens or aliens. Right? So you got there's a difference. And aliens may be legal or unauthorized or undocumented. So there's various levels here. Um, numbers, um, about half of our foreign-born population are naturalized citizens, half are aliens. Of the aliens, half are unauthorized, roughly. Um, and because you know there's a waiting period to become a citizen, uh, the the only 8.9 million of the even the green card holders are eligible to naturalize. They haven't been around long enough, right? So when you hear this talk, listen for what what category you're talking about because they get thrown around in confusing ways, right? There's a 28 million immigrants in the labor force. Lots of people live who are citizen, themselves citizens and American-born live in households with uh, unauthorized immigrants. Right? So it affects a very large portion of the population. Okay, we've are, in the past we've had issues about undercounts and particularly the racial and ethnic um, undercounts. I can talk about that. 1920 we didn't reapportion because Congress didn't like the numbers that they got. Um, um, and there have been cases before where, the, where local, in this case, local governments have phonied up the numbers. There's a classic case in Tacoma, Washington in, in, uh, um, in 1910 where the city officials were caught adding 30,000 people to a population of 80,000. They got arrested. Right, right. Okay, cartoons, lots of popular culture, right? Enumerators, you know, you know, um, you'll no longer be an uh, invisible sufferer, forgotten people, uncounted Americans. You'll be a statistic, <laughs> right? Um, the old one goes back to 1850. Ten questions: What does the government want with all this personal information? Right? You know, this from a guy who f casually filled out a three-page warranty card for his toaster. Right? <laughs> right. Census officials: How many? Stars in the sky, how many grains of sand on the beach, how many fish in the sea, how many people live in the U.S.? Sigh. The U.S. Census Bureau, right? And then, of course, this one I love. It's just a simple little question about your citizenship. What harm could it possibly do? Right? 
Right. And these are left over from 1920 that, that where um, the, what the 1920 census showed was that the urban areas were, had outpaced the rural areas. And so you see this in the Brooklyn Eagle, you know, great big city and little tiny cornfields. Um, and um, the solution before that had been, had been to um, increase the size of the house, but the house was getting very crowded at the time. Finally, I love this one. You know, uh, my daddy says grandma is in the census, but I'm sure she's in Iowa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you for that excellent uh, background in history uh, of the census. I'm going to be talking a little bit about what the city of Madison is doing um, for this 2020 count um, to try to get out the word on the census and why it's important for the city of Madison. So um, we're really trying to focus on two main messages here with the city. Um, we really view our, our role as kind of supplementing the, the Census Bureau's uh, efforts and publicizing the census, um, kind of using our local networks, our local expertise to connect with people and, and provide that, that local perspective on why it's important. Um, and one of those big issues is for funding. Um, it was mentioned um, that the census is used to, uh, as a, uh, metric for distributing federal money. I've heard estimates from 675 to about $880 billion a year um, is informed by census data in terms of how the federal government distributes that money. Um, and that funding goes towards all the things that are shown on the screen here, plus other programs and, and areas as well. Um, so health care, nutrition, education, affordable housing, transportation, child care, um, all of those things are funded um, in some part by the federal government, and the federal government uses census information to help distribute those funds. The other thing we're really talking about is representation. So that was certainly mentioned um, in, in uh, previous presentation in terms of representation. Um, certainly, you know, local aldermanic districts, county board districts, uh, state assembly districts, state senate districts, uh, and the House of Representatives as well. Um, here in the city of Madison, we use census information to redraw our local aldermanic boundaries. Um, we do that um, starting in, in 2021 when we get local data um, from the Census Bureau um, to help us uh, in doing that. And this is a map kind of comparing our aldermanic districts uh, shown in the black uh, outlines that were used through 2011 with the aldermanic district boundaries uh, shown in the color areas that are going to be used through 2021. Um, so we can kind of see how things shift and move a little bit um, based on Census Bureau and the numbers and how the city grows and changes um, in the intervening 10 years. So we know from things like building permits and um, you know, other kind of intermediate estimates of population growth that we're growing in some specific areas of the city. The far west side of the city has certainly seen a lot of growth. Um, downtown, the UW campus and the Isthmus has seen a lot of growth through redevelopment of property. Um, and then there's some neighborhoods developing on the east side as well. And so we kind of expect that um, there will be some shifts to account for this when we go to redraw our aldermanic boundaries um, in 2021 and 2022. Um, and so some of these areas will 
have other aldermanic district boundaries shrink because there will be more people in them. Um, in some areas that you know maybe hasn't haven't grown at all, the boundary, the geographical boundary itself will will get bigger. One of the things that we're going to have to pay attention to as well is we're absorbing the town of Madison um, in 2022. Um, unfortunately, this will be a little bit after we have to do the redistricting, but at the same time, we have to keep things like this in mind so we don't end up with um, more people in a certain single district within the city, which will then be up underrepresented for the next 10 years. So we have to make sure that we're able to, as, as these new 5,000 or so people join the city and you know, basically overnight, that um, we're able to make sure that they go to aldermanic district boundaries that will uh, better balance the city's rep representation until the next census is undertaken. And so one of the things that the city is really trying to focus on as part of our engagement um, with the community is trying to reach hard-to-count populations. And these are populations that the Census Bureau has um, estimated have been undercounted in the past and may then be undercounted in this, this 2020 census as well. So this is not an exhaustive list, but um, it's been estimated that people of color um, are often undercounted, young children under age five are often undercounted um, for various reasons, potentially including you know, parents maybe thinking they're not in school, so they shouldn't count as part of, of, of this uh, census population count. College students have tended to respond at lower rates. Uh, renters, uh, as opposed to homeowners, have tended to respond at lower rates. Low-income households, recent immigrants, non-English language households, and homeless populations as well. Um, obviously very hard to count um, as the census invitations go out to specific addresses. So um, people experiencing homelessness need to be enumerated in person um, oftentimes, and that can be challenging when that's such a mobile population. And then kind of new for this census is households without Internet access. Um, that could be a challenge. There are multiple ways uh, that um, people will be able to respond, but... Um, we want to make it easy for people to respond in whatever way they choose. So households without Internet access, um, we at the city are going to be providing areas, including libraries, where um, households that want to respond that way will be able to go and use a computer to uh, fill out their census information. Um, so we know that um, with previous censuses, there have been estimates that there have been undercounts. Um, a 2012 CBS report said that the census missed about 2.1% of black Americans, 1.5% of Hispanics, together accounting for about 1.5 million people. Um, that was statistically comparable to 2000, uh, and that's in spite of an aggressive advertising uh, campaign and outreach effort in 2010. Um, a 2018 WPR report says that the 2010 census missed about one million children younger than age five in its count and is likely to do the same in 2020. So these are the kinds of challenges that we as a city want to try to address in our outreach to residents um, in the city of Madison. The Census Bureau also has a map. Um, it's called the Rome Map, uh, Response Outreach Area Mapper. Everything has to have an ac acronym. Um, and so this estimates geographically where the Census Bureau is expecting kind of harder to count areas within the overall uh, city of Madison in this case, but this is actually a nationwide map. Um, and so we can see the darkest blue areas kind of around campus and close to downtown, uh, South Madison, and then areas kind of south uh, of the Beltline and then east of Verona Road. 
um, anticipated to be the hardest to count areas. And then other areas as well, kind of on the north side, um, and then south of the Beltline as well, are also anticipated to be harder to count. Um, finally, the census did some uh, surveying around attitudes uh, of the population in the U.S. around the census. Um, this is called the CBAMS uh, survey. Again, another acronym. Uh, if you Google it, you can see more about what uh, that covers. Um, but just want to touch on some of the questions that were asked and some of the results from those questions. So one of the questions was, how concerned are you, if at all, that the answers you provide to the 2020 census will be used against you? So populations of color are much more concerned about um, you know, answers from the census being used against them, uh, certainly uh, a metric or uh, probably a result of our current political climate and perhaps uh, some of the uh, controversy around uh, the citizenship question as well, although this was conducted in uh, late 2018, so really the, a lot of that controversy emerged a little bit after that. So we can see that that'll, that'll be a challenge in terms of reaching uh, some of these populations and making people comfortable with filling out the census. Um, at the same time, there was another question on how likely would you be to fill out the census form? Uh, white populations much more likely to fill out the census form. Um, this does, to me, provide a little bit of reassurance, though, that in spite of uh, some of the skepticism that we saw in the previous slide, um, populations still um, that answered not too likely or not at all likely are still fairly small in comparison, but still this is, this is kind of a barrier that has to be overcome. Um, then another question on this survey was, which one of the following uh, is the most important reason to you personally that you should fill out the census form? And really, across the board for this question, the top answer was community-oriented reasons. And what that really boils down to is that funding issue in terms of the community benefits that can come um, with a complete and accurate count of the population in a certain area and how that allows uh, you know, geogra geographies to get their fair share of federal funding. Um, kind of going with that then after that is civic duty, so kind of tying that into the Constitution, tying that into um, you know, the same civic duty that people feel to vote. And then also determining the number of representatives was uh, another response for that as well. Um, last slide on this topic, the, a series of true or false statements were uh, included in the survey. Is the census used for this or not used for this? Really focusing in on four results specifically is uh, the census is required by law to keep inf information confidential. That's a true statement. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, over a quarter of respondents were unsure of that answer or answered incorrectly. Um, the census used to help the police and FBI keep track of people who break the law. That's false. Um, but over a third of people either weren't sure or answered that incorrectly. Another statement that was part of this, this true-false series of questions um, is... Uh, the census counts both citizens and non-citizens. That's a true question. The census is here to count everybody living in the United States at the time that it's taken. Um, so almost half of people either were not sure or answered that incorrectly. Then finally, the final statement was the census is used to locate people living in the country without documentation, but that's a false statement. Um, and again, almost half of people answered that incorrectly or did not know the correct answer. So these are some of the barriers that you know, the Census Bureau faces in, in communicating around the census. Um, and these are some of the barriers that we face as a city um, in convincing people that it's important to fill out the census. So I wanted to touch a little bit on what the city has done thus far to 
um, try to spread the word on the census and its, and its importance, and then I'll wrap up my part of the presentation with um, some more of what the city will be doing in between now and Census Day on April 1st. So, um, as had been mentioned, the city's formed a complete count committee. That was a committee created by the city council to um, undertake community outreach and assist staff in our outreach that we're undertaking on the census. We have a city staff team made up of members of various departments to really take advantage of the various communication avenues that a variety of departments in the city have within the community and also take advantage of the expertise that we have throughout city staff. Working with the UW and Madison Metropolitan School District on outreach to students. Um, in the UW's case, it's very important because uh, college students attending the UW that are living in Madison during the spring semester need to be counted here. That's about 30,000 undergraduates, so if we have an undercount of students, that would be a major issue for the city of Madison. Um, and we're working with MSD, MMSD as a trusted messenger to parents of, of students within the school district. Um, that's a way to convey information to those parents um, that they should be participating in the census as well. I'm working with Madison Metro on some advertising. Uh, distributing half-page census flyers at community events. The league has also been very instrumental in spreading the word on the census. We've provided some handouts to the league to pass along during some uh, voter outreach activities. We have a 2020 census webpage with, uh, here at the city and an email list. I'll have a link at the end of my presentation uh, to get to that page. Um, we've done engagement with residents at various community events, things like Juneteenth and Dane Dances, a variety of other events as well, and we'll continue uh, doing that in conjunction with our community partners that I'll be talking about on this slide. So um, the city of Madison has uh, had about $150,000 budgeted um, this year, and then going into next year, a total of $150,000, and the bulk of that is to uh, provides some funding to community partners to undertake outreach on the census. So these are nonprofits and community groups um, that are active in the community with constituents um, and in certain, throughout certain areas of the city. And so this is something where we're really focusing on groups that um, serve undercounted populations and hard-to-count populations um, to be able to do that outreach. And each of these community partners has, in turn, partners of their own that they're working with on census outreach. And Abba will be talking a little bit more about that um, being from the Northside Planning Council. We've retained some assistance to kind of connect us at the city uh, with uh, media outlets, and I'm not really talking about kind of the major ones in terms of the uh, TV stations or the Wisconsin State Journal. They're already active and covering the census, but these are more like, you know, community newspapers and newsletters and things like that to um, kind of uh, under undertake that additional avenue um, to connect with the community. Um, we'll also lean on them to uh, kind of steer us in, in spending uh, that very narrow sliver of our, our budget for the census on some kind of targeted advertising as well. Um, we'll certainly be doing some outreach by traditional city media and social media newsletters and blogs, um, having presentations at community events such as this one. Um, and then we're doing things like water bill inserts, property tax bill inserts um, that are a pretty cheap way to get the census message in front of a large number of households. Um, that in and of itself maybe doesn't necessarily reach hard-to-count populations, but is just a general way to uh, spread the word on the census. Um, some of what we will be doing, um, some more of what we will be doing, um, be looking to gro do grocery bag inserts, especially at kind of community-focused markets. I'm um, doing some outreach through major employers, especially in conjunction with our Complete Count Committee. 
we're working with our city channel on doing a kind of a local 2020 census video. Um, and then be working again in conjunction with our complete count committee on getting the message out, the census message out through houses of worship, uh, community centers, homeless shelters, apart apartment associations, landlords, food pantries, and, and other avenues. So um, this is kind of a snapshot, a sampling of what we're trying to do. Um, and we're looking forward to really using all of these methods to make sure that Madison uh, does have a complete and accurate count. Um, there are other communities in the area that are also undertaking activities. Dane County has a complete count committee and is undertaking um, similar uh, census publicity effort, efforts uh, elsewhere in the county, um, and we're coordinating with them on, on some of their efforts to make sure that this outreach really reach, reaches a broad, as, as broad of a population as possible throughout Madison and, and really the rest of the county. Um, so with that, I will uh, turn it over to Abha to talk a little bit about uh, more about outreach. Um, this is our link or our path to the city webpage. Feel free to go there for some uh, you know, census information, some links to Census Bureau information. Also sign up for the email list. Um, I have a dedicated uh, email address for census inquiries. And um, in addition to myself and our interagency staff team, uh, Linda Horvath and Melina Bernard-Mello are also a uh, planning division staff that are heavily involved in the census. So, thank you. Um, so I have been with the Northside Planning Council on and off for the last 18 years, actually. So I started there in 2001 as the associate director. It was my first job out of college. <laughs> um, and then I left for six years uh, between 2007 and 2013. And I'm now back as the executive director uh, for the last five years. Um, so NPC um, has been around since 1993. And the north side is a, is a great little corner of town um, that not a lot of people know of. And sometimes I'm not sure if I want to let everyone know. <laughs> um, because it's, made, it's meant that our housing values have remained affordable. <laughs> um, but we do have a lot of hard to count uh, folks on the north side. And that's actually one of the reasons that the planning council was founded in the first place. Um, it was really uh, in response to an increasing level of um, challenges that our residents were facing. Uh, and at the time, Mayor Soglin paired up with uh, many of our community leaders and took a road trip over to the Twin Cities to explore this model of planning councils. And so really in the beginning, we were a coalition of neighborhood associations. And um, we existed to do neighborhood organizing and leadership capacity building, or leadership development and community capacity building. So some of the things over the years, and I, I share this context so you know sort of what our network of relationships looks like and how that helps us do this outreach. And so um, over the years, um, we built Warner Park Center. Uh, we published the Northside News, which is uh, celebrating its 20th year now. Um, we uh, started the Northside Farmers Market. We established Troy Gardens. Um, we have brought grocery stores back to the Northside when we've needed it. Um, and also, we've helped lead a series of advocacy campaigns over the years, all the way from land use to school equity and nowadays the F-35s. You may have heard about that. Um, so since 2013, we've really branched out into local food systems work. Um, and while that may sound a little different from the kind of outreach we're talking about, most of the work that we do in the local food system is around equity. And so we uh, opened the Feed Kitchens business incubator in 2013. 
Um, and so we have about 77 startup food businesses working there right now, ranging from caterers to food carts to bakers to spice makers. Um, and out of those, 55% of those businesses are owned by people of color and 49% are owned by women. And so we're really shifting who the business owners are in this city. And that also means we, we have um, direct ongoing relationships with a lot of folks in a lot of diverse communities. If you come into feed at any given moment, it is probably one of the most diverse workplaces in the city. Um, and it's really fun and it also smells great. So <laughs> feel free to stop by. <laughs> um, we also operate the Feed Bakery Training Program, which is a vocational training program for unemployed and underemployed adults. So again, um, it gives us a lot of relationships in different communities. We run Healthy Food for All, which does um, food recovery and food waste reduction. So we collect food from places like Epic Systems and American Family Farms and Orchards. We repackage it and we get it to food pantries and neighborhood centers um, and senior centers and other places where people need food rather than having it go to waste. Um, and then uh, we also operate the Madison Public Markets Market Ready Program. So a couple years ago, the city contracted with us to help develop a vendor base of diverse businesses that could become um, mainstays at the future public markets. So we have 30 startup businesses in that program that we work with. And again, most of those are minority-owned businesses. So even our food systems work gives us a very deep set of relationships um, amongst hard-to-count populations. Um, and then we continue to do the community capacity building stuff. So we really act as a convener and a backbone organization for the North Side. Um, in the last few years, we've been focusing on youth violence prevention, and we're currently writing a community peace plan for the next three years of a strategic vision around reducing violence. And in fact, sadly, um, we are hosting a community healing event next week for the homicide that just happened in one of our neighborhoods. Um, we've been working on early childhood development, partnering with the Northside Early Childhood Zone, um, and also doing some solidarity economy work. So we're actually in the process of developing a 24-hour childcare cooperative. Um, so kind of all of these programs are meant to serve the very populations that we would like to count. Um, and so census outreach made a lot of sense to us. Um, and when I put the word out to our partners, um, one of the real exciting things that's happened on the Northside these last two years is around the youth violence prevention work. We've had a federal grant that has brought together about 15 to 20 agencies around this topic, which means we have a very close-knit network now of nonprofits there. I mean, quite honestly, I, I think it's, it really is a model that the rest of the city should look at because we work together on a, I would say, often a daily basis to sort of problem solve, to do asset inventories, figure out who can deliver the best service for a particular issue. We share funding, which is kind of a miracle in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> um, and we've really learned to take it away from competition with each other to collaboration and to making most, the most efficient use of our resources. So I was able to take that, and um, when the census RFP came out uh, for this project, I sent it out to all of our partners. And within 24 hours, because I didn't give them a lot of lead time, um, they, I had 15 organizations reply and say that they wanted to sign on and be a part of this. Um, and so we put together a collective application that really leveraged all of our different experiences and assets and relationships um, and that is sort of what we are implementing now today. So, um, 
So in order to really understand outreach, particularly to hard to count populations, I think the very first thing we have to talk about is trust or the lack of. <laughs> um, so even preceding the census rhetoric that's been happening at the national level, um, it's really critical to understand the deep level of mistrust that people have for systems um, and for our government. And people know when, um, when systems have been set up and they aren't meant for them, and they recognize that, and they feel it. And over decades of interacting with those systems, um, they've had experiences that at the very least haven't been helpful, but at the most have often created harm. So I can give you some specific examples. Um, we work, like I said, with the Early Childhood Zone, which is a home visitation program, which is a lovely concept where you have social workers who visit with families in their homes when they have children under the age of five and really are there just to provide them support and services so that they don't have to find a childcare provider to go out and meet a service provider somewhere. However, a lot of families are not comfortable inviting social workers into their homes because Child Protective Services is always out there, and they see that as them being punished for being poor, um, which often is the case. Um, other issues, for example, is that our government often, and by our government, I, at all levels this happens, but we are often bankrupting poor people um, through fines and fees that then co collect interest and then have um, collections agencies going after them. So, and oftentimes these aren't even their fines or fees, it's their children's or it's others. And so I can't tell you how many residents I, I work with that, you know, are dealing with, um, with $3,000 bills that started at $300 and over the years have accumulated because of the interest. And so there is an incredible amount of mistrust out there. Um, ever since the Northside Planning Council has grown, so Four years ago, we had three employees, and we now have 23. <laughs> um, and we've hired a lot of folks that we've trained. And so it's a lot of um, our residents who come from low-income backgrounds. And I have been astonished at the number of my staff who have garnishments on their wages that are being leveraged from our government at various levels, again, all the way from the county to the state. So, um, so it's challenging. It's challenging because we are starting from 10 steps behind already, right? Um, and then you have the conversation at the national level, which has been incredibly toxic in the last year um, for, for building trust around the census in particular. So that is sort of the big, um, the stage that we need to set for this conversation, right? Um, so some of the strategies. So then, you know, I'm thinking, oh boy, so we're going to apply for this, and then we actually have to figure out how to do it, <laughs> knowing all that we know about how hard this is, right? And yet we applied. <laughs> um, and we did it partly, beca partly because it was obviously the thing that needs to be done. I mean, this is, we have to count people. Everyone counts. It matters, right? So, um, so but we also did it because I know we have tools, and we have experience, and we've failed at it miserably in the past, and we've learned from those failures, and we continue to get better. So some of the tools that we have, the big one, like I mentioned, is collaboration. So those 15 service providers are um, that signed on, and more continue to, by the way, since we received the funds, we continue to get partners who just didn't have time in the 
36-hour window I gave them <laughs> to reply. Um, but we have Kennedy Heights Community Center, Vera Court Neighborhood Center, Latino Academy, the Packer Community Learning Center, the Northport Community Learning Center, the Northside Early Childhood Zone, the Mendota and Lakeview Community Schools, Sherman Middle School, Lakeview Branch Library, Dane Arts Mural Arts, the River Food Pantry, the Warner Park Community Recreation Center, Northside Farmers Market, and a ton of neighborhood associations. And that, again, was just a cursory survey. Um, so the great thing about this is that we have all of their relationships at our disposal. We have all of their assets, their, relation, their events that they're going to be holding. We have their facilities, and we can come together. So the first thing we did is we pulled together a steering team with representatives, and we've already had our first meeting. The, the program started in September, um, and it was a tremendous meeting. It was actually really exciting to see everyone show up because we got the executive directors and these are busy folks and they all came because they see the, the critical nature of this, right? And so we have some significant buy-in at a very high level of all of these organizations. Um, and so in between us, we've just had a ton of opportunity already to be experimenting with good strategies. Um, and then these are the people that people trust, you know? They're the ones who they work with on a daily basis in their neighborhoods. And so that's what makes it work on our end. Um, their next step is going to be to hire outreach workers. Um, and um, Marilyn mentioned the Neighborhood Navigator program um, that I think it was, sorry, <laughs> yes. Um, so we did, we had, we've had two cohorts of navigators, and these are residents who um, come from the neighborhoods that are often underrepresented um, and are, are hard to count populations. And we've trained 12 residents um, in that program, and they do a lot of outreach for us. Now, we don't currently have them on staff because the grant program literally ended on Monday, <laughs> but we do subcontract with them, and we, they are out there, they're trained, and these are, gen usually most of them are women of color, um, and they have relationships in the community that they've been building, and we've helped them develop the skills to sort of learn how to, um, you know, act as that ambassador um, for those, uh, for whatever sort of messages we need to get out there, and they are part of our, they help shape our messaging too. The other critical ambassadors that we are actually starting to tap into are kids. We find that um, kids actually can get their parents to do a lot of things. <laughs> and so if they come home and say, hey, mom, I really want you to count me, <laughs> maybe mom will be more likely to fill out the form. Um, and so some of the other key tools, um, just that really knowing to meet people where they're at, right? So um, tabling at schools and neighborhood centers, at the library, at the grocery stores, holding culturally relevant events for specific language groups. Um, we have a ton of communication tools, the usual, along with our own newspaper. Um, but we also um, have recently developed a text broadcasting service because we know a lot of our residents don't use email or have internet access, but they have cell phones. And so they can actually subscribe to receive updates about events in the community, about voter registration, about any number of things. And so that's a collaborative initiative between all of our partners. Everybody can sign up for different keywords. So if you're interested in voting or if you're interested in schools or, or if you want to know about food pantry hours, uh, and everyone's sharing that subscription. And so and we're facilitating that. We're going to be creating a mural, um, probably on the side of feed, that's created by youth, and it's going to say everyone counts. Um, and so we just actually raised funds for that. <laughs> we had to raise some additional funds, and we got them. Um, and so, um, and then backpack mail with the schools is another way that we're also planning to reach folks. 
So, and then this will culminate with nine events um, that will take place right after the census invitation goes out. So we will actually, over the course of a two-week period, hold consecutive events every night in different locations that will have dinner, childcare, and um, computers and tablets so that people who may not have internet can join us, their kids will be taken care of, they can eat, and we will have people there that can help them um, create their, or fill out their census form. So I, I know I have just one minute, not even, but I'm just gonna say the things that we have to worry about still, um, Professor Anderson alluded to it, we are very concerned about fraudulent um, information around this, right? People being sent to links that aren't really the census, um, or other things like that, and we have experienced it ourselves with various you know, digital assets that we have, and so we know that that's real. Um, so we're setting up a phone and email hotline that people can call and say, hey, I don't know if this is real, can you tell us? Is this like the legit one? Um, we also um, know that there are language barriers, limitations of time and energy that families are facing, and so how can we support them in that? And mental health issues that really are, <laughs> epidemic, epidemic in these communities. Um, and then finally, I will just say, as a naturalized citizen um, myself, the rhetoric has just chilled me to the bone, obviously, in the last couple of years, even as a naturalized citizen, because they don't, because, how do I say this? <laughs> because um, it's been challenging to be an immigrant in this country uh, these last years. Um, because often the dialogue does not differentiate, and even when it does differentiate, differentiate between legal and illegal immigrants, um, it does not at all uh, acknowledge anyone's humanity. <laughs> and so as we went into this, my concern was, are we leading people into a trap? Do we trust that the Census Bureau is going to be able to be safe from the predations of a government that has made it clear what they want? And so. So we took the leap and decided to do it anyway, um, but we are not making promises to anyone about this. We are encouraging them to do it, but if they do not feel safe, we are respecting that because we don't want to be leading them into something. So anyway, sorry to end on that note, but, <laughs> but thank you very much. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 thank you. Hi, for all of you who don't know, my name is Diane Liebert. Usually we have these lovely talks and our general meetings, and then afterwards we think, gee, what are we going to do with this information? Well, with this one, we have a, an action plan. Uh, Aldine and I are setting up an uh, action committee, and we want um, to try to do outreach on the census. We happen to have two organizations that have already signed up for, for us to talk to, but we need people not only that don't mind giving, you know, talking in public, but also help us set up what the program or how we should do it and research and do what other work is, you know, we need to get this program going. So I'm encouraging any of you interested, I think there's a, a sheet out there to sign up. And I'm going to try to, when Aldine gets back from Europe, I'm going to uh, set up a meeting for us to start getting going. Okay. So the question was around prison gerrymandering and how um, prison populations 
count in the community where the prison is as opposed to you know the community where um, you know the folks are coming from um, that are in the prison um, so that that's actually not something that this uh, a local jurisdiction is really able to address that's a census uh, policy yeah, you can change it Local local communities yes, that yes, do have prisons yes, can me, yeah. okay. I, this is, I'm yeah, no the um, <laughs> the um, the res this this gets into something obscure called the residence rules and people in who are in an institution whether it's a hospital or a uh, a dormitory or a prison are considered in group quarters and are counted at the group quarters. Many states have now. Uh, and local areas have now asked the Census Bureau to uh, produce information, produce data that allocates them back to the local area for the kind of purposes, for uh, you know, for funding purposes at the local area and for redistricting. And this is a live issue all over the country. There's a um, a website, and I can't remember the URL offhand. So it is something that that is changing. It it's tangled up in, and again, the the larger national rules that are set up for counting. But there's that this can be fixed, and and um, I would urge people to, like in the city of Madison, to look into it, and somehow find out how you get everybody from the city of Madison who is in an institution outside your jurisdiction so that you can allocate them back for local purposes. Yeah, all you have to do is actually put in a request. Yeah. 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 Um, counting the native population, uh, which is a significant portion of the Wisconsin population. If you look at the map that in the handout, you'll notice that there's a different methodology for counting the northern part of the state precisely for this reason. So it's an update enumerate position. So again, I would ask people to sort of take a look at that and, and, um, and realize that there, there are separate, um, there, first of all, there's advisory committees to the Bureau on um, all the race and ethnic groups that pay attention to this in great detail, and, there are, and that there are probably procedures already in place for it. Um, yes, I've written about this extensively. Um, the notion of what we would call today statistical confidentiality, which is the, the that bans this use this kind of use, was not in place during World War II. Congress repealed it. Right? You always got to watch this. Um, so that the what the Census Bureau did was uh, supplied the Army with very detailed local area data of where the Japanese-American, Japanese ancestry population lived on the three West Coast states and participated in the, you know, the operational plan of rounding them up. Uh, the, as I said, the, the, um, at the time, the statistical confidentiality rules that we have now were, much we were, were not so much weaker, but had only, were, were still being articulated. I do not think that in fact, and that's the reason we keep talking about it, um, that, it that it's a problem for 2020. So, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so the question was on snowbirds and people that, um, you know, might be down south for a few months uh, during when the census mailer, you know, gets uh, distributed. 
Um, so yeah, that is a concern. Um, and people should be counted in their usual residence where they live most of the time. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a hard thing to to deal with because if people don't, uh, you know, set up mail forwarding or anything along those lines, they might have a census invitation in their mailbox and then a reminder and then another reminder. Um, so that's, you know, something that people hopefully um, can become aware of through these these processes so they can still know that the census is going on, know that they need to respond where they are living most of the time so they would, in the case of snowbirds, be counted in Madison because they live in the city, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten months out of the year. Um, another thing that we're dealing with that is you know, I guess adjacent to that is that um, UW students will be out on spring break um, a little bit before, and this is somewhat separate from students that live in dorms, which are group quarters, um, but, you know, spring break for UW kind of interrupts a little bit of that, um, and then spring break happens for MMSD, I think, uh, a few, uh, a week or two after, uh, a week or two after the census forms are mailed out. Um, so those, those are all issues where people you know, are going to be away from their usual place of residence, um, and that can be disruptive to the count. And um, so that's a, a big reason why we need to do this outreach. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any thing <laughs> well, you want to share along that? This is a, I mean, um, yeah, the, what, the cybersecurity issues that are facing us. This is, um, the Census Bureau is spending a lot of time working about this, and Congress, by the way, is also very interested in, in this. So you're going to see a lot more in the media. Um, the, uh, it's, a new, it's a new challenge, frankly, um, because we haven't tried, because the, the, the digital world has changed dramatically since even 2009, 2010. Um, I think sort of vigilance and um, the kind of uh, um, sort of discussions we're having here, being aware of the possibility of uh, fraud and um, problems is, you know, from the respondents' end, from the householders' end, is exactly what needs to get talked about a lot. Uh, the Bureau has very good internally um, you know, control over its computers. I mean, there has never been, for example, uh, a hacking or data breach of all that data that they have. Right? I mean, the, 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 during the Japanese, in the Japanese example, they gave it out. They they gave it out, but nobody has broken in. Right? So I'm not so worried about what's going on in Suitland, Maryland, as I am uh, about fraudulent kind of stuff coming in people's mailboxes. Right. And I think that's an open question. Um, I mean, there, the Census Bureau has a number of things that we've actually kind of reposted on our city website um, in terms of FAQs, um, you know, background about what the census is, uh, why it's important. Um, so the, the Census Bureau website, very useful, uh, 2020census.gov, I think is the... I'm looking in the back of the room. I think that's the, the main census website for uh, the Bureau for the 2020 census. Um, has a lot of um, great information, FAQs, kind of one-page uh, sheets that boil things down. Um, many uh, specific issue-based things as well. There's a, a fact sheet on security elements 
um, of the census for people that are interested and curious about that. Um, as far as when to use handouts, um, really for the city's part, this is something that um, you know we've started ramping up uh, just over the summer, so we already have awareness efforts going, and um, we'll continue participating in those um, through Census Day itself. Um, so uh, it's you know now is is the time to start, I would say, um, and really to continue on with that message um, through uh, Census Day itself. So we do have uh, all of our fact sheets. Oh, sure. I am Georgina Manley with the uh, Census Bureau, and I am the partnership uh, coordinator for Wisconsin. So we do have all of the fact sheets on our website, uh, so you can download everything. Also, we can provide some limited fact sheets if you would like to go through the League of Women Voters, and we can mail it out as well as Ben. So we do want to make sure that Madison and Dane County are uh, counted. Uh, so we wanted to count everybody once, only once and in the correct place. <laughs>